Hi, Doug. Vroom, vroom. We're back on the boulevard. Hello, Karen. Hello, listeners. We're here to cultureify you as much as we can during quarantine. Yes. Um, so we got shit to talk about. What are we talking about? <laughs> well, we can be literary and talk about one of the books I've read, or we can talk about some of the TV that I've watched. Um, and that's I want to talk about the book. I want to talk about the book because I haven't read the book, and you sent me this Vulture article to sort of prep me for this conversation, and I am fascinated now. Sure. And I don't know how many answers I, I will actually have, but let's tee it up for you listeners. Uh, there is a fairly recent release. I feel like it was published right before COVID became a pandemic. Uh, it's called um, My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. Um, and it is about a woman who it goes back and forth between her uh, in. in in adulthood, in her, around 30, 32, flashing back to her time at uh, a private school in Maine, where as a teenager, she had an affair with one of her professors and how that has followed her um, the rest of her life in multiple ways. Um, and the book toggles forth between her narrating to us um, in the moment uh, and, and then chapters from her uh, describing you know, in detail, um, what she did when she was 15 or starting when she was 15. Um, and what I think the great genius on Russell's part is this is a woman who clearly has been affected and traumatized by this relationship she had with the professor. And it has affected her in ways that she is not able to recognize and she is therefore an unreliable narrator to a large degree but we only pick up on that incrementally to really see some of the effects of the trauma to really recognize the signs that this professor in many ways was a predator um, but there is a lot of gray area. It is not a black and white sort of book. So the timing is definitely, you know, perfect for a book like this. This very much ties into uh, one of the major cultural conversations from from the last year and uh, last several years, I should say. And uh, and Kate Elizabeth Russell, who has an MFA, uh, is very steeped in a lot of literary illusion. And before anyone else can even make say references to Lolita, she does so through the main character of the book herself. So, so if there's any charge that this book is derivative, um, she basically acknowledges uh, whatever you think. I'm already thinking the same thing, and I'm, I'm moving forward with my story anyway. I think it's really sharply written. I think what sort of fascinated me was, first of all, that this became, I guess, I forgot how old she is. She was relatively young when she read Lolita. And um, she actually read it as a romance. Yeah. And that's very similar to what the character goes through, which is she really has to reorient herself and look at things in a very different light uh, later on, which is what which is what Kate Elizabeth Russell basically says she has to do with the novel Lolita later on in life. Yeah. And, and so she as the writer, you know, she she the writer worked on this book for 20 years, 20 odd years in and out of college, since, undergrad, since she was, MFA. Yeah, since she was a teen. 
Yeah. She had this in her. Yeah. She started writing it on like live journal and like working with it. And in her head for 20 years, she thought that this was a romance. That's right. In 20 years, she wrote what she thought was a romance about what was effectively, you know, I mean, I guess it was a consensual relationship, but there were definitely power dynamics at play that made it, um, you know, that made it very questionable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, And, you know, there is a forward to the book that says people will ask me, is this autobiographical? Did this really happen to you? And she says, all I'm saying is this story is fiction. But in many interviews, including the Vulture article I sent, she does acknowledge that there was some thing that happened in her real life that feeds the story that she had wanted to tell through this novel. She is sort of cagey about it to a degree, but which is her right. Uh, so it, like, it doesn't really matter to know any details of what she may or may not have experienced, but she probably did experience something that allows her to render this story as vividly as she does. Um, I think that, you know, it was sort of, well, first of all, I mean, there are so many layers here because first you've got, yeah. the, you know, in this Vulture article in particular where it's really kind of laid out because first you've got this book you've got and the fascinating part that it, she had been sort of like, you know, digesting the story for 20 years um, and how, you know, she misread Lolita as this romance and, 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 and endeavored to write a romance herself that sort of followed the same, you know, ideas of this very young girl having an inappropriate relationship with a teacher and and then you sort of get into I forgot where my head was going with this hold on in real life are you talking about the real life controversy yeah I'm kind of talking about then we sort of like dive into all of these like real life controversies started happening um you know but but I was also sort of thinking about how she is cagey. I think I think what I did want to sort of start with was how she was cagey about where these ideas sparked from and did it come from her life. And I think, you know, the one thing that I recall when I read Lolita, and I don't think that I ever had an experience where it was like a teacher or a professor or, but back in like the 80s and, and probably into the 90s, you know, early, early 90s, there were older men that preyed on young girls and this was actually okay. Well, it was, I'm sure, tacitly approved by everyone around them. Yeah, like in the eyes of... These men could just do it. Yeah. In the eyes of society, this behavior was considered okay. Right. And, um... And I don't really know that I have a point there, but that was something that I kept thinking about was like, you know, um, my God, this behavior was like back then, back when I was growing up, like, you know, this, this behavior was fine. And I think, I think one of the things that struck me from what I read in the Vulture article of, of what she was trying to do with the book, which I think is kind of fascinating is looking at it, like from the point of a view of her narrator who's saying, yeah, like who, who's, who doesn't necessarily feel like that power dynamic was inappropriate and was wondering what her complicity was in the situation. 
Um, you know, because I will say, like, you know, as a teenager growing up at that particular time where people didn't blink when these things happened, you know, you just were kind of like, well, I guess this is okay then, you know, and, or, yeah, or like, yeah, well, these things ha- happen. Something these things happen. happen. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, well this, this is what's supposed to happen. This is okay. This, there isn't anything bad about this or, the, or, you know, I think that there's that lens a sort of confusion there that I think was really fascinating that her, it seemed like she was trying to do with this character and not to make excuses, but to say from the point of view of the victim, Sometimes it's not a clear cut. I have been victimized. No, no. And that that is communicated in, I think, excellent form throughout this novel. Yeah. And even though she clearly was victimized, sometimes the victims don't necessarily feel that way until, you know, years later, certainly not in the moment. Right. And she's uh, this character is very stubborn about the prism through which she views what happens because, you know, she maintains that she had a lot of agency and that this was truly about love. Um, and, um, you know, she rationalizes it. She romanticizes it. Uh, and continues to do that to a degree where where you as the reader finally has to say, no, I cannot accept everything she is telling me at face value. Just because she sees it this way, I don't have to look at it a different way, but I have to at least question what she is saying, how she is remembering all of this in ways that I think are both bold and subtle. Okay, right. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was what you mentioned about uh, the controversy. Yes. So you read about it in the article. Um, This other author, Wendy Ortiz, started criticizing um, My Dark Vanessa because, you know, she said it covers similar terrain uh, that her own memoir that was published about five or six years earlier did, which involved a relationship that the, that author had with, an, I think, an eighth grade teacher. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I, uh, she's of Latinx uh, descent. So, you know, this controversy, like, crosses all sorts of lines about what is right, what is original, what is publishable, what is marketable, that sort of thing. But it was enough to light a a fire that grew into a bonfire um, and was enough to have her, uh, My Dark Vanessa, which had been a um, Oprah's Book Club pick, removed from Oprah's Book Club. Oh, I didn't realize, that wasn't in the article. I didn't realize this was an Oprah pick that then got removed because of this controversy. Yeah, she, uh, Oprah had, or whoever does it for Oprah, um, had made it in uh, Oprah's book club selection. And then after that controversy kept brewing, that selection was rescinded. Wow. Which, Which in a sense, okay, the controversy makes for more publicity, which is good, but it also adds a, a layer of, of, infamy to to the book as well um i don't know i i think it's shitty even if even if you don't think this is a stellar book and if i wouldn't give it an a i would probably give it a bb plus um like that's that's one writer shitting on another writer that's one woman shitting on another woman i think it's shitty 
Well, I mean, there were a couple of things that sort of struck me as this, because this, it seemed to brew up around the controversy surrounding American Dirt, which they brought up um, in the Vulture article. That was the novel about Mexican migrants written by a a white woman. American Dirt, yeah. And they said, how dare a white woman write about... Yeah, and and apparently... Yeah, and apparently the the actual, like, experience of crossing the border didn't ring true. Like, it was a lot of falsehoods because she didn't... You know, anyway, I didn't read it. Um, I just, you know, read a little bit about the controversy. I never read the book. Um, But that was referred in the article. One of the things, however, that ended up happening with this controversy originally with the original memoir writer who called her out. And then, you know, there was this sort of Twitter pylon with Roxane Gay, who Mm -hmm. got involved um, in, in the pylon as well. But then there seemed to be some backtrack. Um, you know, from uh, well, it, it kept going back and forth. The, you know, people coming out and, and saying shit on both sides. Right. You know, and the, but basically, like Ortiz was basically like sort of even walked back on what she had originally, you know, accused this writer uh, accused Russell of, which was plagiarism, which even which didn't happen. Because apparently, like Ortiz's memoir was very experimental, it yeah. whereas you know Russell's work was clearly super commercial. Absolutely. Um, you know, and one of those books that sort of reads like a thriller. I, I'm get I'm gathering from from what I was reading about it. it. It's it's written as a page turner, and it's a very easy book to get into and to follow. Absolutely, right. yeah. And that sort of Bond girl esque, you know, thrillery sort of like writing that goes on that that makes a commercial book, you know, a commercial book. You know, still literary, still having merit, but definitely with mass appeal. Right. And apparently, according to Vulture, it says Gay later reviewed my doc, Vanessa, for Goodreads. She described it as well written and called the online conversation aggravating. Yeah. Not sure. uh, Not sure what that means exactly. But, you know, and then again, like Ortiz, this is where Ortiz kind of, you know, backtracked a bit. People are taking it as me against Kate, but it's but it's bigger than that. And so it is. This is this is a, it this is a big issue. It is a big thing. Yeah. This is an issue of mainstream publishing. This is an issue of what voices, um, you know, get published and what voices do not. But I will say also, if you're writing an experimental memoir or an experimental work of fiction, you know the big five is not going to touch it. You're going to end up going to a small indie press because the big five wants the page turners. They want the books that are going to sell lots and lots of copies. And, and do the- so and do so across the country and right. do so internationally. Yes. And do so and, and maybe get a TV deal and maybe yeah. get a film oh, yeah. deal, yeah. you know, because these, these, they're paying out these six figure advances to these books and, you know, they are commercial venture. They expect to and need to make their investment back. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think that's where you've got to sort of step back and, and say, you know, cause there, there are, what, what's that old, what's that saying that people talk about? They, they say there are only seven original ideas. 
Yeah, yeah, or seven stories to tell. Yeah. yeah, or something like that. There are actually only like seven ideas in the world, and we are just retelling the same seven over and over and over again. The idea that there really is no original story. There, is, there are just original ways to tell. It's how it, it's how you tell that story. Yeah, it is how you tell that same story over and over again, and it kind of feels like this was the same. But I, you know, I do think in terms of like marginalized voices, like the onus should not have been on the author of My Dark Vanessa, who clearly did not plagiarize the work. The onus is on the publishing houses and sort of whose voices they're amplifying and whose voices they are not. Um, You know, and, and that's where the ire should be directed, not towards the writers themselves. That's the thing. I mean, she made uh, Kate Elizabeth Russell in Sacrificial Lamb. She can say that, there were, you know, it's a larger issue, but, you know, she she didn't go against, you know, the heads of publishing companies. She went against an author whose big novel had just been published and only against that one person, really. Um, so, you know, she's sort of talking out of both sides of her mouth there. I mean, I think I think that's kind of like what like what struck me with American Dirt and that whole controversy around it. And, you know, it was sort of like attacking the writer and how dare you tell this story. But I don't understand why the attacks keep going. You know, we keep attacking writers. And let's face it, the writers being attacked are female writers. I don't know that male writers are getting attacked like this, um, which is a whole problematic issue in and of itself. Oh, yeah, it's intersectional. Yeah, You know, but, you know, the other thing is, like, the, you know, if, if publishing, if you're writing a book and you're writing a story and you're like, okay, this is the story I'm writing, you can, you can write whatever story you want. Now you're going to go shop it to publishers. Are you going to say, well, actually, no, don't publish my story? Oh, you're going to give me a six fat? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, I don't, like, in the privacy of my own home, I'm going to write a story and I don't know that... I don't know. It's it's a hard it's a hard thing to kind of like wrap your head around, because on the one hand, you can write any damn story you want. You know, on the other hand, at what point do you where where does the responsibility begin? Right. Where does your responsibility begin? And where do you say, you know what, I'm not the person to tell this story. So do, do you then not submit it to agents? Do you then not submit it to publishing houses? Or if you do get a publishing deal, you say, oh, well, I'm not the one to tell that story. So no, now you can't have it. Like, I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, if you do tell a story that is, quote unquote, not your story to tell because you're just sitting down writing, at what point do you actually stop that process? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, where do where does that self-censorship exist and who is ultimately responsible to be a gatekeeper or not. And everyone has a different reason to want to move that story along or move that property along and make money off of it. So, yeah, I I, I can't speak to American Dirt because I've not read it. And even if I did, I probably would not have the expertise to account for its uh, accuracy. Right. Um, But, you know, it's tricky because... there's one thing which is write what you know 
well, if you think you have this story in you to tell, then go for it. Good on you. And then there's another thing where how dare you tell this story or how dare you think you can tell this story, which is typically what only other people can say. So, you know, it's it's definitely an eye of the beholder type thing. I mean, I would never be able to, I think, unless I had lived it, tell a story about what goes on in another culture or another time period, another era, another country, that sort of thing, because mm-hmm. my life has been the East Coast, the late 20th century and the early 21st century. That's pretty much those are the stories I would tell because that those are the stories I know I could dig into and tell. Um, but other people uh, are different, have other experiences, other interests, that sort of thing. So I don't know. I think, you know, when you read something or see something, if it is authentic or phoned in, even if you can't dig into what that is, um, I think you kind of intuit yes or no, that something is either rich or maybe inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, but but not everyone, you know, is in a position to actually point the finger and say, no, cancel this because I disagree with it. You know, like there are different there are different reasons why one may or may not want to do that in the first place. So so I don't know. Um, I I think it's shitty that my dark Vanessa seemed to suffer at the hands of Wendy Ortiz. Um, and I'm glad that it also gave the book a boost because I'm glad I read it. I guess I just feel like there's, I just, I just, I just feel like it's, you know, Twitter is dangerous. Like, you know, all of, I mean, social, just, media, all of social media has given a lot of people that should not have the license to wield a red pen, uh, all, all of a sudden a red pen to wield for all the world to see. Like right. that is my big problem with it. So yes, I already agree with everything you're about to say. Like, Continue. You know, like Twitter, like it's just, it's a cesspool out there, you know, and, and, and there just seems to be, you know, this is sort of like the one thing that's really struck me during the pandemic is there's, you know, going on social media and reading the news stories about, you know, when the state started shutting down, right. And in particular, I'm thinking about the schools when the schools shut down and they moved everything to online learning. And, you know, so I had my eyes on all these articles because clearly I have a child and I needed to know what the hell was going on with this online learning thing. And all of a sudden you'd sort of like, look at the comment section, guys, don't look at the comment section, never look at the comment section. But if you did, like I stupidly did all of a sudden we're running down these comment sections and, and it was the what about isms, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what about this situation? And what about that situation? Every single person has a very unique and a very different situation, whether it's their kid or you know, their home life or their, like, whatever that thing is, every single person in that list has a very unique situation. And the problem is the schools need to sort of like, you know, intervene on behalf or or they're working on behalf of hundreds of thousands of kids, right? And so they need to sort of start with a very broad stroke and they need to say, okay, this is what we're doing. And then they need to start drilling down and saying, okay, well, what do we do with the kids that don't have internet access? What do we do with the kids who have IEPs? 
what do we do with the kid? You know what I mean? Like it just becomes this thing where, where like then you have to drill down and then it also becomes the parent's responsibility to step in and say, hey, okay, the, okay, I get it. We've got to move to online learning, but this is the mm-hmm. situation with my kid and I need to bring that up directly with the school. But all of a sudden there seems to be everybody kind of wants these sort of bespoke solutions um, in right. a situation where there is – so. I'm losing my point here, but it does feel like there is a point, um, you know, where, where it, the world is just too big. And I think everybody is yeah. looking so myopically at things. Do you know it? Right. Yeah, and this I think is what I kind I of think that's definitely true. And this is kind of what I feel for a bit. And I, and I also do think it's really interesting that, Ortiz had this reaction of saying, you plagiarized my work when, when interestingly enough, she saw her story right. within this other woman's story. And I think that that is definitely something that can happen. And that's called empathy, right? Like this is how we have these shared connections because we have these shared experiences and shared experiences does not equal plagiarism. Correct. And, right. and similar and similar experiences does not equal plagiarism either. Oh my God, Jesus! Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Is, is Siri is Siri attacking you? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, Siri's attacking me about plagiarism. <laughs> does she have any thoughts? I don't know. She, Siri's been doing that a lot lately, where she just randomly goes off. <laughs> I didn't call you. You know what? Times are tough all over. I, I'm sure she's ready to explode. I know. I'm sure that she is. Um, you know, so so I guess that's um, yeah, that's kind of where I, yeah, it's complicated. The the whole thing is the, this whole situation is super complicated. And as somebody who writes, I'm terrified of it, frankly. Yeah, I mean, there are no there are no are no easy answers, and there is no right and wrong. It's it can be just frustrating all around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say as a writer, it's definitely terrifying. I mean, there sure. are like oh, personal essays that I've wanted to, you know, go out there and write because I do think that there is like, you know, like these are like questions that I have myself that I'm grappling with in terms of like what it means to be a feminist. And am I allowed to feel this way, even though, you know, I look at myself as very like, you know, of you know. Uh, women forward and stuff like that. But then I have these like sure. these hang ups and I'm always like, oh, maybe I should write an essay. And then I'll go to, you know, like an online writing group that I'm in. And, and all of a sudden I will see all these women sort of pile on and attack these other women for having, um, you know, these not necessarily, I mean, they're not woke, you know, not wokeness, mm. but, you know, a lot of it has to do with like body images and eating disorders and stuff like that. And it sort of becomes like, you know, like not okay to celebrate a weight loss. Right. Like, and, and there, there becomes like this very sort of vicious online attack on whoever that person was that, that was celebrating the weight loss. And it, and it's sort of like, and that's where I sort of have to go and scratch my head because it's like, well, nobody is telling you this person, whoever you are, who I do not know that you are bad or you are not worthy or you are all these terrible things because this other person decided to write an article, you know, celebrating their weight loss. And that, and that, and there seems to be a real push for that sort of censorship. And because honestly, I feel, I do feel like what that is is censorship. Yeah. Through public shame. 
yeah through public shame that's exactly yeah. it it is it is through shaming because this these aren't conversations that are meant to um you know spark spark a dialogue or a, or a debate these these are you know shaming to the point of some t- of it's, you know bullying that's what it is i mean as someone who has written upwards of 300 opinion based pieces a year for however long on the internet um it's not about what i would love to it's not about, I put something out there, I think I'm right. The idea is, oh, and other people that may be similarly engaged or interested can comment, can can create a dialogue, can open up a conversation. Instead, it's just people trying to shout out loud and shut you down to yeah. find why you are wrong or the other is better. Looking for the slight is what I always call it because they come in, whoever the quote-unquote they is, with their own set of right and wrong and preferences and are just looking to discredit you as a different voice for thinking somehow differently than them. And instead of finding the common ground or the area where you come from uh, that might open their eyes the way they want, you know, yours to be open, blah, blah, blah. Instead, they shut it down. Instead, they put down a curtain or lift up a, or build up a wall, that sort of thing. And I, I, as our country continues to polarize, I do not see that response changing at all, only moving in the opposite direction, which right. is really sad, which is really sad and also very inhibiting for sensitive, creative people who do have stories to tell based on things that they have felt acutely um, and are afraid to just because of other people. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that it does. And that sort of like digs in because, you know, we're supposed to creatives are supposed to be out on social media and building followings and doing all these things even Uh, to sort of like be in the room. Right. If they do want to sell their work and and make, you know, and have a career. And it becomes a very like uneasy thing because you just don't know, like, well, shit, am I going to do something and am I going to get called out for something that I didn't mean to do that I didn't I wasn't aware of you know and then right and then how do you and then you know and you can't even react to it because it, even as soon as you react there's you, no right response yeah, no matter what you really do no right is wrong including not responding yeah no matter what you do it's wrong because it will somehow fan the flames because the fire has already been started by then it's it's incredibly frustrating it's in, it's uh, like everything we have going on now, just because it's it's so sad and wasteful, and there's nothing that can be done. Yeah. You you either hope that you are tough enough to take whatever heat comes your way, or just avoid it in the first place. But there's there's no doubt that it will draw more heat than it does. Um, I was gonna say warmth, but that may be fixing the metaphor than kindness. <laughs> uh... Yeah. So anyway, it sounds like a it sounds like an interesting book. I don't know that I would read it. Um, I really did like Lolita when I read it um, ages ago. It was definitely one of those books where I, it was fascinating. I couldn't put down. I read it in my twenties, I think. Um, and I did not think it was a romance. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did not think it was a romance. But one of the things that I did find fascinating about it was how 
sympathetic Nabokov made the um, the Humbert. main character Humbert. yeah yeah um, I mean I think that that was like truly an extraordinary feat where this man was a monster and oh, yet definitely. he was so sympathetic and you could almost you almost felt bad for him, you know, almost. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. Two things can be true at once. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can, you can be flawed. You can do things that are destructive and there can also be things happening to you that others can find sympathetic. You know, it's really funny because when you're, when, when you're writing villains, you know, um, the one thing that sort of sticks out that, that has been, you know, told to me countless times is that, you know, a, a villain in their own story is the hero. Exactly. You know, so whoever you think who, you know, whoever this character is that's doing these, quote, you know, these dastardly deeds in their own story, they are actually the heroes of their own story, and there is somebody else in their story who is the villain. And so when you start looking at it like that, then you can sort of, then you start to paint these real layered portraits of, of characters. That's absolutely right. You know, and, and so that is where I think Nabokov's brilliance was, in that he really did make, you know, his villain um, the hero, you know, in, in in Humbert's own, you know, world. I mean, he was his hero. He was the hero of his own story. Right. And therefore, that made him actually sympathetic, even though as we're reading it, we know he's a pedophile. We know he is a monster. We know he is doing something terrible to this poor girl. But at the same time, there is a sympathy there. Well, that and it's... You, that and the that's feel. that's the, the skill of the creator. It's right. how they lull you in. For then for you to realize, oh, wait, but no, I shouldn't root for him or her. I shouldn't want this for them. Oh, wait, this is wrong. And, you know, I mean, that is the beauty of Breaking Bad. That's mm-hmm. how the anti-heroes of the, a lot of the modern TV shows, like Tony Soprano as well, that's how it works. Um, which actually might be a perfect segue into some of the TV I had wanted to talk about. Today. Oh, well, please, yes. What but only if way. only if we only if there was nothing else that you wanted to bring up about uh, Kate Elizabeth Russell and my dark Vanessa. No, we're good. We can move on. We move on. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple shows I have been able to catch up to um, in in our shelter in place dumb. Um, and one is I don't know if I talked about Dead to Me after season one, the show with Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. I don't um, have, um, which and I, don't I think loved, you've seen it, right? And I oh, you no, saw I, I saw the first episode, and then and I loved it, but I just never followed it. Up. I imagine you're probably in the minority there because one of the great strengths of the show is uh, how every episode is almost built into a cliffhanger that immediately makes you want to keep watching the next one and the next one and the one after that. It's very intricately plotted. It's actually plotted, like I keep saying about a lot of streaming shows, very much like a movie where there is a taut, thought out plot. Um, and there, so I really think each of its 10 episode seasons actually functions like a movie. The second season that dropped maybe three weeks ago uh, is really like a sequel 
film more than it is just like another season of a show. It takes place in a relatively short period of time. The things that happen start escalating very quickly, very logically. Um, and so for me, they've both been very quick and rewarding binges, um, especially because the cast is really great. Both Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini are wonderful. And James Marsden is also on the show. And to me, I think he's still one of the truly underrated TV performer slash like sex symbols, because I think he's so good looking. People fail to see just how versatile and, and smart he is as a performer, um, including things like on Westworld. Um, so I wanted to give all three of them a shout out. Um, and also I watched that around the same time I caught up to um, the second and third season of Good Girls, mm. uh, which I think I talked about season one of before, but, um, you know, I, 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 I went a little back and forth about what I thought of the plot because it's kind of, a, oh, what a tangled web series about these three women who get in over their heads. Um, they, they commit a robbery together because they're in different types of dire financial straits in the pilot. And it's, it's sort of like, the life of crime that they uh, fall into because the, the, the hole just keeps getting bigger and bigger. They can't really dig themselves out of it, but they can at least try to not get swallowed up in it. Um, Christina Hendricks is the nominal lead and she's fantastic. It's so nice to see her carrying a show. Um, and Retta, best known from Parks and Recreation, is great. And Mae Whitman, who I still think of as the daughter in One Fine Day and Independence Day and Hope Floats, is also really great. Um, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's, you know, between the, the, the two of those shows, um, having seen Ozark, I mean, there's so much crime. There's so much money laundering. There's so much, you know, like ducking authority. Also true of, say, Better Call Saul. I'm sure there's other shows. God, I love Better Call Saul. That I haven't that I haven't thought of. Um, you know, wait. Oh, wait, wait. Hold on. I'm I'm getting a page from my fiance. What's that? Barry. Oh, Barry. Also, good characters doing bad things, or maybe bad characters doing bad things that we're getting uh, away with. What's that? Run. Oh, that's a separate story. The show Run. I'll get to that in a sec. Um, um, we're watching a lot of people outsmart the authorities. The cops on these shows are usually painted as being super corrupt to themselves or super bumbling and incompetent or super sympathetic to the plight of these people or a, a lie that these people come up with. I would like to see a more <laughs> fair balance of like, no, the cops, the FBI, the people that are out to fight the crime actually know a bit more what they're doing because I think that would raise the stakes. Um, a lot of times I feel like if this were real life, these people that keep doing the things that they're getting away with, like they would be caught, they would be killed. They would somehow, they would be arrested, that sort of thing. Um, so I think there's, first of all, just so many of these shows that are about like people up to no good and getting away with it and us identifying with them, which is interesting. Um, but I'd like to see it 
be less easy for these people to not get away with it all the time and to have truer feeling obstacles. So that goes back to what you were saying, say, about Lolita, how it's, well, but the way we're brought into these stories is you are the stars. You are the ones we root for. You are the ones whose home lives, whose families we do see and we do feel for. But I'm like, if you met these people in real life, if you saw what they were doing on the street, you'd want them out of the way. So... So just just throwing that out there. It's interesting. But I do think that Dead to Me um, is uniquely skilled at um, really giving us reasons to, to root for its protagonists. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So Alyssa brought up the show Run, which I talked about a couple weeks ago in the middle of its run. Um, and it just had its season finale on Sunday night. I have an inordinate amount of hatred for this show why um i think because i watched it in real time so i had time over seven episodes seven weeks or six weeks to to keep thinking about how frustrated i was by the story which is a different kind of time commitment than maybe watching something in a binge or over a couple days because you can mentally dispose of it differently. Um, I, it's a very unique kind of flawed structure and storytelling that had zero payoff and kept shifting its tone and intent um, with no gain. I didn't care about anyone. I didn't know why characters that I met midway through the series suddenly took center stage. There was just no no payoff or even a punchline to what was threading it together. Um, and it's, it's just like, why? Who thought this was a story <laughs> worth telling? Um, I don't want it to come back. I won't watch it. But I don't even want it to have the glory of saying it got more seasons. Like, I just hate this show so much, which is a shame because I like the cast. Um, but whatever everyone involved thought they were doing, they did not accomplish it. So there. So there. There. Um, and I started watching the show The Great, uh, which is a sort of anachronistic take on young Catherine the Great on Hulu with Elle Fanning. Mm-hmm. Um and three episodes in, and I'm done. It's, it's, uh, it's, really? it's not for me. The great is not good. Not for me. Not good. Uh, um, so yeah, but I do. I do ask anyone else who is listening to this and watching the show, who does like it or love it, uh, I'm all ears if you want to tell me why. Again, um, I would love to open the door to that dialogue, like we were saying. <laughs> so I watched something called. You did. I did called the wrong Missy. Oh, I'm all ears for that, too. I watched it. So tell me, tell because me, I know how, like, choosy you can be. So why did you watch this? Okay, I watched it because um, I was in the mood for something kind of stupid. Yeah. And this seemed to fit the bill. I, it's on Netflix. I watched the trailer. And I said, oh, that looks kind of stupid and ridiculous. Maybe that's a good one for Sunday night, right? So, and, yeah, it was definitely stupid and ridiculous. And that's about well, all going. Good. So wait, that, wait, wait, that's about all it had going for it, or all you wanted? No, that's all it had going for it. It was Meaning you didn't love terrible. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
It was awful. And it was, you know, David Spade. It was, uh, you know, I thought, oh, well, I used to like David Spade, who doesn't look like David Spade, by the way. Is it's, it the hair or the face or what? I don't know. It's like it's not David Spade. I'm wondering if he had work done. Oh, probably. Yeah. This is the one he has two missies in his phone and texts the wrong one wrong. to ask to come yeah. along. Yeah. And so the Missy that he wants to invite is sort of tall, blonde, slim, beautiful, you know, and that sort of she kind of ticked all the boxes of like their interests, you know, what they were interested in, their life experiences. They were like twinsies. Right. And so he decided that that was like the woman of his dreams. Um, but he met her just after a few months after he went out on a blind date set up by his grandma with this other Missy, who is the total opposite. She's kind of like a little strange looking and kind of gawky and super uninhibited and kind of obnoxious, depending on sort of where you stand on that sort of, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of uh, behavior. And he ends up inviting her on a trip to Hawaii that he has to go on for a business conference rather than the Missy that was he felt was his soulmate. And so he's basically like trapped in paradise with a person that he cannot stand. Hijinks ensue. But do they? Do but they really? do they? I mean, it's a lot of shock value. It relies on a lot of like, it really relies on a lot of raunch, but not the, there's something about Mary kind of quirky yeah. and funny raunch. Like it is just like, it, it is just really gratuitous, the raunch. Um, and ultimately ends up being not very funny. Um, the, the, the Missy who is really obnoxious is really obnoxious and it is and it is not until we're probably three quarters of the way through that you become kind of like well she's not so bad and that's not because you suddenly understand where her obnoxious behavior is coming from it's just that she stops she she becomes a little less obnoxious and when she's less obnoxious she really does seem kind of fun but she spent the entire movie being completely over the top and we've never been given a, a really good reason for that, you know, for that behavior. Um, and then the way that they sort of like end it, like the, the, obviously the relationship, you know, he, he, he comes to the realization that the wrong Missy is actually the right Missy, but by then it's too late. But that realization that he comes to is also it, it that one that that's also doesn't quite work anyway i had i really expected a lot more this was um what what who does happy gilmore that's adam sandler right oh that's him yeah yeah so he was the production company behind it um you yeah. know david like i said david spade was in it chris poppas was one of the writers it should have been better than it was this was just really terrible oh that sucks i thought it was going to be like cute fun, light amusing. Yeah. No, it was just so bad. the wrong Missy that he takes with him is Lauren Lapkus, who I have a lot of problems with watching and things because I okay, just don't I think never she saw her. Before. I I I don't know if she came through as a stand-up comic, but but she's all over like everything, lots of TV guest spots, and all of a sudden she's in like the new Jurassic Park movie. And um, all over the uh, the podcast world, she was in Good Girls. I think that role is continuing when it comes back. 
Um, so she's even getting dramatic work to a degree. Um, and I just find her incredibly limited and lazy as a performer. Um, I think, I imagine she's probably very nice. She comes off as very affable, um, in interviews, but I, I do not enjoy watching her because I just think of all the people they could have cast and paid to play this role, you got her. Why? So that for me was a turn off and a deterrent to, to not see the movie. I, I can kind of, yeah, I could kind of understand that. I mean, I, I had not seen her in anything, or if I had, she'd never, you know, if, if I have, she really never stood out. But, you know, I think that the way that she was playing this role was very broad, but also I don't know that the writers gave her much to work I with imagine, anyway. I imagine material-wise, no, not yeah. a lot to work with, yeah. Yeah, um, so, so I couldn't you know, it was sort of hard to fault her, you know, is it her fault? Is it the material's fault? Is it a little bit both? You know, I, it it was definitely hard to say. I mean, David Spade still remains like, I still remain a fan of his. I think that he is better than this. Um, yeah, I guess I think so too, because I was surprised when I first heard about this film dropping. So yeah. But you know, what has he done? I mean, I don't, I haven't seen him in ages. I guess TV. Didn't he have a sitcom for a while and then a talk show? Did he? <laughs> I'm like, did he? I don't know. Alyssa, did did he? David Spade ever have a talk show or he some reality Spade show? Tonight. Spade or tonight. Or Dave Spade tonight that was on for a couple of months and just canceled. Literally like last year. Oh, she said it was only on for a short period and was very recently was canceled. Was um, Men Behaving Badly, was it called? With Megan Price and Patrick Warburton and he was on Men Behaving Badly. I think that's what it was called. Don't quote me. Alyssa is my own personal Siri. She's just giving me the information, and I'm believing her implicitly. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I feel... Okay. Oh, he was on Rules to, of Engagement was on, on CBS. Was that CBS? Yeah. yeah. I mean, according to his IMDb, he has been working. I just haven't seen him in anything. He's, he's been in and out of the public eye. Like, not like he had been during his prime, for sure. Right, right. So anyway, I just, like I said, I, I'm i a David Spade fan. I was like, I haven't watched him in a while. I thought it would be really great. And it just wasn't. Well, consider us warned, people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can skip that. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything on my docket as, as like, the next must-see um, I don't know. You might just have to be surprised next week by what I have to talk about. Because okay. I have to surprise because I have to surprise myself. <laughs> well, well, I look forward. Um, but thank you guys for tuning in and we hope you are all doing okay and feeling well and staying healthy and staying sane. Um again, like we were saying, this is, you know, an open dialogue. So feel free to engage with us. Let us know what you think about what we've talked about. Agree, disagree. It's all good. Um, if there's anything you'd like us to actually watch or read, uh, we're happy to do that. Uh, you know, as always. Um, yeah. Hit us up on Facebook where I'm back on the block pod and um, yeah. Catch us, catch us here next week. Yeah. There'll be more street action on the block and on the boulevard. So we look forward to seeing you then. Bye. Bye.